Welcome to the legacy teachings of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Church since 1979. Though these teachings are decades old, we invite you to get out your Bible, take notes, and get ready to receive the uncompromised teaching of God's Word. For more information about Christian Assembly Church, please visit us online at cafamily.net. Open up, please, in your Bibles to John's Gospel, the third chapter. We're just going to read uh, some things here I think we need to know. We've been talking about, on Sunday mornings at least, knowing some things about the Father, establishing a relationship with Him. And uh, we're going to continue that. Of course, I know sometimes we get some of these things and it's, we've given them to you before in the past. And if you don't have the tapes, then uh, sometimes you get caught in the middle of the teaching. But I believe if you'll be open to the Spirit of God, you can get something out of it, receive from it. And uh, if you'll keep an open heart and open ears and receive what the Spirit of God is saying to us, I believe it will give life to you. Amen? Jesus said, my words are spirit and they are life. Now, in the third chapter of John's Gospel, you know, sometimes we just hear some things and some phrases, and people that don't understand, they get a little bit upset, and they uh, try to figure out some things from their head and don't let their hearts take over. So consequently, they just don't accept some things. In the third chapter of the third verse, let's just read what Jesus said. I say that again. Let's read what Jesus said. I said, let's read what Jesus said. I'm not telling you what I said. I'm not telling you what your friend down the street said. They don't carry any weight in my book. Let's see what Jesus said. Amen? He said, in verse 3, chapter 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, let's, if you don't like the phrase born again, then let's just say born anew. And if you don't like the phrase born anew, let's just say he said be born from above. And if you don't like the phrase, be born from above, there's nothing I can do because that's all there is there. That's all the Greek gives you. Born again, born anew, or born from above. And I didn't write the book. But Jesus said, except you be born again, or anew, or from above, you will not have eternal life. Now, the theme of the Bible is redemption. And we should read it in that light. The theme of the whole Bible is redemption. But the theme or the subject of the New Testament is the new birth. Or God giving birth to His really own people that were lost. Let's put it this way. God adopting His family back. You see, in the fall, Satan became the illegitimate stepfather of the human race. Adam lost fellowship because he lost relationship with the Father God. So, the whole theme of the Bible is redemption. God the Father wanted to redeem us back. In this great plan of redemption, part of it would be that He, through the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, through the blood of Jesus, would actually give birth to man. Man would be adopted back into God's very own family by a birth or a new birth or a born-again experience of the human spirit. God the Father would impart His life and nature into the spirit of man, that man would become born again, born anew, born from above, and not just religious. Alright, that's what Jesus is saying to us. So in God's great plan of redemption, 
We see it includes a giving birth to the human spirit by the great Father of spirits, the Father God. And we're going to see why it took so long. Let's just go back a, a chapter, chapter 1. Let's go back to chapter 1, back a few pages. This birth is the will of God. It's God's will in our lives. It's not something that, you know, religious people make up. People, you hear people walking around saying, what does it mean to be born again? And, you know, to me, I don't even think about it because I know what it means. And those, to those that are born again, we may just say, what you mean? You don't know what it means to be born again? Well, yeah, the person that's not born again doesn't know what it means or he'd be born again. Isn't that right? Amen? And sometimes we just take it for granted everybody knows what it means to be born again and they don't. Now, it's the will of the Father God that you and I be born again. It was the will of the Father God to give birth to us. Let's put it that way. Let's take a look at... Well, let's start from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things are made by Him, and without Him there was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. That light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Go on down to verse 8. He was not that light, speaking of John the Baptist, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by Him. The Word. That's Jesus. Jesus is the Word. He was in the world, the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. He came unto His own, His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power or authority to become the sons of God, even them that believe on His name. Now the verse I want you to get to is verse 13. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. This birth is not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of blood, not of the will of man, but this birth is of the will of God or born of God. It is God's plan. You just happen to be in it. Born of God. It's the Father's pleasure to give birth to us when we were dead. Now go to James, the first chapter. I want to get that across your thinking. James, the th first chapter. It's just the same thing, but I want you to see it confirmed in the mouth of more than one witness. Verse 18 says... Of his own will. <clears throat> Whose will? James 1.18. James 1.18. Of his own will begat he us. What's the word? Gave birth to us. Whose will? God the Father's own will. It was his will to give birth to us through the word. Okay, of his own will. It was the will of God the Father then that he give birth to us with the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Well, notice now there's a little bit more information of, on how you got the new birth. He gave birth to us through the word. Through the word. Now, Jesus said back in John 3, 3, or 3, 5, we read 3, 3. You've got to be born again. But in 3, 5, he tells you what to be born of. Except a man be born of water or the Word and of the Spirit, he cannot enter and has no way of gaining entrance into the kingdom of God. Okay. So it was the will of the Father God to give birth to the human race through the Word of God, quickened by the Spirit of God inside the heart of man, because it's the will of the God the Father to adopt us when we were lost, doomed for hell, to adopt us back into the household of God, into the family of God, with an actual birth. Birth. Not joining a church, not attending church, not belonging to a fellowship or an organization, but being born again in your spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Now, from the fall of Adam... If this is the great plan of the Father God, then from the fall of Adam, God the Father was revealing to us His plan as to how this could possibly happen. Why did it take 4,004 years for Jesus just to come and die for us? That's a long time. 
I mean, that's a mighty long time. Why do you wait so long? Why are all these people dying off and, and, and not making heaven? Something to think about. Why did it take God so long? Well, there's an answer to that in the Word. Go to Galatians, the fourth chapter. We're going to explain something here to you. Now, God the Father had to instruct this man that fell and died. Because when I said Adam died, he had no longer a relationship with God. He had no longer fellowship with God. God could not reveal His plan to man because God cannot stand to look upon sin. Man was kicked out of the presence of God. How was God going to approach man or man approach God when there's a barrier called sin in between the two? There's a wall. There's a veil separating man from God. God cannot tell man his plan. Man can't receive it from God. He can't approach God. God can't approach man. He needs a mediator. He needs somebody to stand in between and fill the gap. Amen? So, slowly he begins to put the puzzle together. He begins to give knowledge. Mark this down if you don't have this written down somewhere in your Bible. The Word of God, the Bible, is progressive revelation. People go back to the book of Job and they try to say, well, look at, look at this. Forget it, friends. That book of Job had the most limited knowledge of God. One of the first books written. Progressive means it gets more and more and more and more and more and more as you go along. Well, if, if God's Word then is progressive revelation to man, why do you want to go back to the first book ever written when man's knowledge of God was very limited? I want to go to where the eyes of our understanding are wide open, so to speak. Isn't that right? And find out more about God and grow progressively to know Him better and better and better each and every day of my life. But they go back to the beginning. They go back to these books and try to prove this point and that point. And it's just, uh, I, I just say it's just ignorance of the Word of God. The Bible's progressive revelation. If he didn't need the new covenant, then why did he get rid of the old covenant and give us the new covenant? Stands the reason that what we have now is more knowledge than what they had then. Isn't that right? Well, we're going to show you how this here works out. In the fourth chapter of the book of Galatians, we're going to study it in the light of the third chapter. But let's just start in the beginning here. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. Now, adoption, well let's read verse 2 first. But is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. You need to underline some of these things. Notice he says the heir, as long as he is a child. Underline the word child. The word that's used there in the Greek means one who cannot speak. If any of you got any little ones running around, you know that if they're at the age that they cannot speak for themselves, they're just a child. Alright? Now the heir, so long as he is still a child, you see, differeth nothing from a, than a what? Than a servant. Even though, he, even though he is an heir, see, but he's still a child... He differs nothing from a servant. He can't handle the responsibilities of an heir. So he's under what we call governors and tutors. Underline in verse 2. Under tutors and governors. Now we're talking about the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. Although they were heirs because God had chosen them, they were still considered servants and not really sons of God. They were called children in the learning stages or process of, in the process of learning about this great plan of redemption. Now, in the Eastern world, adoption wasn't like it is today. In the Eastern world, and I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the, the Jewish bar mitzvah, they wait till the child is of an age after they have been under an instructor, a tutor, or a governor, instructed in the things that they should understand, and then on a given day, at the appointed time of the father, that child now is adopted into that family as the legal heir to the entire wealth of the family. He has just as much authority in that family as the father does, as anybody else does. But up until that time, he differed nothing from a, you know, just like a servant. Why? Because he's just a child. He does not have the capability of standing in that with that power. He has no way of using that power. 
He would destroy it. He would ruin it. Okay, now keep that thought in mind. We see here then that they were under tutors and they were under governors. Now, write this down. The tutor is an instructor, an informer, or one who teaches. Tutor, an instructor, or an informer, or one who teaches. A guardian. A guardian is one in whose care something is given. It could be a child or some great possession, whatever it is. A guardian. They were under tutors and governors. Okay? Until when? Until the appointed time of the Father. Now, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, they were under the tutor, they were under the governor, the law and the prophets and the priesthood were all to instruct and to teach and to show these children who could not speak of the great oracles of God until the appointed time of the Father, it was to instruct them and train them and rear them up so that they could come to a place that they could be adopted into this family and be the heir and equal with him or share all that's in, 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 the, in the family or all that's in the household. Well, Israel then was to be instructed through the law and through the priesthood about all these things that were to happen. God then from the beginning had to just drop bits and pieces of knowledge. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there. Finally, Abraham came along. The nation of Israel came along. Because of sin, the law came along. Now, let's go back. We've got to go back because I'll show you how the law was to instruct them. Go back up to, let's take a look at verse 24. Wherefore, the law was our what? Our schoolmaster to bring us unto who? All right. Now, now, now let, me, let me clarify this. He's speaking as a Jew. You've got to get this in your mind. He's speaking as a Jew. All right? Under the law. The law wasn't my schoolmaster. It wasn't your schoolmaster. It was Israel's schoolmaster. Isn't that right? We're not under the law. We're under grace. But the law served this purpose. Us to be a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. To train us, to educate us, to give us an understanding till when Christ would come, they should have known fully, fully known that this was the Messiah. This was the appointed time of the Father. Well, as you go back and read the whole entire third chapter, you see he's talking about Abraham. He's talking about the blessings of Abraham. He's talking about why the law was given, the purpose of the law, because of sin, to teach, instruct, and to train these people Till Christ would come, look at the last part of that 24th verse. That we might be justified by faith. Because the law justified no man. So God was limited in that He could not justify man. He could not bring them to a place of spiritual rebirth or new birth or regeneration, whatever you want to call it. Because it, there wasn't enough knowledge of, of Him. The Savior had not come yet. All these things were just given to give them instruction, to teach them, as a little child is trained up and taught and reared and instructed in the ways of the family. How he could become an heir. How he can be adopted into that family and be an equal heir. As we go on back in Galatians, the fourth chapter, let's read a little more. Verse 3, even so, when we were children, now that's not you and I. When we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman. Let's hold your place there. And turn to a, just a few pages. Ephesians, the first chapter. Notice, when they were children... They were held in bondage. Do you remember over there in John 8 when Jesus was talking to the Jews and He said to them, uh, If you would continue in My Word, you'd be My disciples indeed, and you know the truth, and the truth would set you free. They said, we not, We're not held in bondage unto any man. How sayest thou that we're in bondage? Who are we in bondage to? We're not born of fornication. We're born of the Father God. 
Well, that verse over there says they were held in bondage under the rudiments of the world. They were in bondage and did not even know it. They thought they had it all, but they didn't have it all. They thought they had come to this place of righteousness, but they didn't come to any place of righteousness. And Paul was saying if you were to go back and study and understand exactly what was taking place, you'd find out that this was all just to set us free. There was a time coming, an appointed time coming when we would all be delivered from this bondage. And Jesus said, if you'll stay in the Word and follow my Word, this Word will set you free. You won't be in the bondage anybody anymore. But the time hadn't come yet, and they, they didn't understand that. And so they were all baffled. Finally, he just had to go and say, well, you're just like your father the devil. Isn't that right? They said, we're not in bondage. Well, he said, you are in bondage. Now, look at Ephesians, the first chapter, verse 4, or verse 10. When the fullness of time would come. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. The law, the prophets, the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood was all set up to instruct, to child train, to rear them up to a place that God could bring them to a place of understanding and knowledge of his eternal work of redemption. To bring them to Christ so that when Christ would come, they would no longer be children, but they could be adopted into the family of God legally through the rebirth of their human spirits. That's exactly what he's saying in a nutshell. So he can gather all things unto himself. All things. You've got you to know that. I think we went over it once before, but keep it in your thoughts again. All things in Christ, both which are in heaven and that are on the earth, even in Him. I want you to keep that. All things that are in heaven, all things that are in earth, all things in Him gathered together under one, under the Father. Well, let's go back to Galatians, the fourth chapter. As you know as well as I do, they didn't get out of the law what they were supposed to get out of the law. Here's the purpose of it. Verse 5. To redeem them that were under the law. Now note this. That we might receive the adoptions of, and the word there is sons, not children. In the Greek, the word actually is the same. It's the word huios, H-U-I-O-S. It's the same word that is referred to as Jesus being the Son of God or the huios of God. Jesus, the Son of God. That's why he said this was all done so that he could bring us to a place in the fullness of time that God would send his son and you guys could be justified by faith, redeem those who are under the law so we can have the adoption of sons. I'll tell you what, friends, that took a lot of work. Not from God. It took a lot of work because God had to work it through our darkness. Alienation. Darkness of our mind. Couldn't get anything that God was trying to say. Plus, now you ready for this? People say, well, why in the world didn't he just come out and say it? Because the devil would have heard him. I said the devil would have heard him. It took the wisdom of God to confound the devil. It took the wisdom of God to get across through our skulls. In our minds, his great plan of redemption, without the devil knowing what he was doing. Because if the devil knew what he was doing, man is no match for the devil. And being separated from the Almighty God, God was limited as to how he can get this message to us and through us. But everything in them 4,000 years was pointing to this one period of time when Christ should come. Now... In the law and in the priesthood, we said that it was to show us of a birth process. And uh, Louise Gomer gave me this. And to do it justice, I just thought that instead of just putting it in my own words, I would read to you some of these points. As I meditated this and studied this, the Lord gave me even more. And it just opened up a, a new perspective in my life about this great plan of God's redemption. I want to read to you just, just from this book a few things about how the law, the prophets, the priesthood, 
the holy days showed to us, showed to them a birth cycle as to how man was to be redeemed and how God devised His great plan of redemption around these feast cycles, the, the, the feast, which is a birth cycle, and it's exactly the way a, child, a woman that gives birth to a child, any woman that gives birth to a child, all the feast days were surrounded around the cycle of birth, even in a woman's natural life. So I'm just going to read some of this to you. I want you to listen carefully. I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to highlight it. And uh, the book is called The High Holy Days. This part of the book is, t- is taken from Zola Levitt's study of the Holy Feast Days. We have studied the seven Jewish Holy Days found in Leviticus chapter 23 and have considered their place in prophecy. The Feast of the Passover, the Unleavened Bread, the first fruits occur in the first month of the Jewish calendar, corresponding to our Easter in late March or early April, and prophetically find their fulfillment in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pentecost occurs 50 days after the Feast of the first fruits, and prophetically signifies the empowering of the Holy Spirit for the work of taking the gospel to every creature. In the time sequence of the seven Jewish holy days, God gives us the beautiful story of the development of God's masterpiece, the creation of man. The story shows first that the Bible was written not by mere man for 3,500 years ago. Man did not have a scientific understanding of gynecology or obstetrics. Quite the contrary, the Bible was written by one who possessed absolute knowledge of the meticulous birth process. More than that, it had to be written by the one who designed the birth process. Second, these Jewish holy days prove divine creation through the magnificent parallels between the Jewish holy days and the development of the embryo, we learned that the theory of evolution is absolute nonsense. In this study, he had a female doctor explain the birth process to him. And quite by accident, as he was listening to what she was saying, he was picking these things up in his spirit. Okay, the doctor said her first statement gave him a clue as to the whole process. She said on the 14th day of the first month, the 14th day of the first month, the egg appears in the womb. When she said the 14th day of the first month, if you go back to Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, you find out that that's the first feast day, feast of the Passover. Well, he said that's when the egg appears. Well, symbolically, I read it to you. The Jews use an egg on Passover, the Passover table as a symbol of the new life that they were granted by the sacrifice of the lamb in Egypt. The Christian world does not celebrate Passover as such. Instead, we celebrate Easter, but it corresponds with the same season of the year. Strangely enough, the symbol of, the, of Easter is the egg. Now, granted, the symbol of the egg of our Easter comes from a pagan source, but nevertheless, it corresponds beautifully with the Jewish symbol at Passover. They use the egg to celebrate the Passover, which was symbolic of new life. Okay, the first thing that happens in a woman's life, if she is to conceive and have a child, is the egg appears. Now, on the 14th day of the first month is exactly when it happens. That's exactly the first feast day, feast of the Passover. It is it possible then that God has chosen to correlate the Passover with the birth process? If so, then fertilization of the egg must coincide with the feast of the unleavened bread, which is the next feast, which is the next day, 24-hour period. Well... Mr. Lovett asked the doctor how soon fertilization of the mother's egg must occur if pregnancy is to happen. Her answer was very clear and definite. Fertilization must occur within 24 hours or the egg will pass on. How incredible and perfect. The next feast day is symbolic. The 24-hour period, fertilization, which is symbolic of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread is a picture of the burial of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, except... I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Again, Jesus referred to his body when he offered, when he offered the unleavened bread on Passover night. In Matthew 26, 26, he said, Take eat, this is my body. So this is the second feast day. Now, not only do these two momentous prenatal events, the appearance of the egg and the fertilization occur on the right days, but they are also the appropriate events to draw a parallel. The egg stands for the Passover, the idea of fertilization, the planting of the seed is for the unleavened bread, the bearer of our Lord. His crucifixion on Passover gave, us, gave each of us a chance for everlasting life. His burial in the earth prepared for each of us the glorious resurrection to come. 
Now, of course, he's going to have to follow this all right on through to find out if every event and every feast day lines up and correlates to all of what was given to us through the prophets and through the Levitical priesthood. Well, the next question Mr. Levitt asks obviously concerned the Feast of the First Fruits. That's the next feast day. That feast does not occur in perfectly timed cycle as do the previous feasts in the Passover and Eleven Bread. Well, the Feast of the First Fruits simply occurs on the Sunday during the week of Eleven Bread. It could be the day after or it could be almost a week later. Cautiously then, without revealing his motives, he asked the doctor, what happened in the birth process? What's the next event to take place in the birth process? Well, the doctor said this is a little bit indeterminate. The fertilized egg travels down the tube at its own speed. It takes anywhere from two to six days before it implants. Two to six days. How incredible that it should be timed so perfectly with the feast of the first fruits. Then, too, she used the word it implants, which corresponds perfectly with the festival of first fruits, which is the spring planting. This is also the correct medical term since implantation marks the moment when the fertilized eggs arrive safely at its des destination in the womb and begins its miraculous growth into a human being. Each feast day so far is showing the exact cycle in human birth. Is the feast of the Passover? Well, she said up until the 50th day you wouldn't know if there were, you were going to have a duck or a cock or spaniel. But at the 50th day of the embryo it becomes a human fetus. The first signs of life come. The very first signs of life when you can show and understand that it's a, it's a human child. Well, what happened on the 50th day was the Feast of Pentecost. Which, as you and I both know that in Pentecost we are the first signs of the resurrected life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? Okay, each feast day so far is exactly God showing to man a birth cycle or a birth process. Only God could design the embryonic growth of a human child and, the, and then build His holy feast days around its development. Likewise, the New Testament church was given life through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, the next one is the fifth thing. The, the next significant event in the development of the unborn child occurs ten days later on the tenth day of the seventh month and coincides perfectly with the Day of Atonement, the tenth day, the seventh month. Now, Dr. Margaret Matheson stated that the important changes are in the blood. It's necessary that the fetal blood which carry the mother's oxygen through the baby's system to change in a way that the baby can carry its own oxygen. Okay, I'll just give it to you in my own words. On the Day of Atonement was the exact day that the high priest went into the Holies of Holies and took the blood and sprinkled the blood upon the mercy seat and all the utensils of worship, cleansing Israel for that year, which is symbolic of, and there's a prophecy, there's a prophetic meaning here, which we'll get into a little bit. On that exact day, the exact day, the baby's blood is changed on that day that the baby has its life, can live itself through, its, through that system, what happens in the baby's system. Now imagine that's exactly the exact day. The same day the Feast of the Atonement. Okay. The next one would be the Feast. Well, let, let me read some of this because this is very important. Let me read some of this for you. Technically, the hemoglobin of the blood has to change from that of the fetus to that of a self-respirating and circulating human being. The fetus does not breathe, but rather depends on the oxygen obtained through the mother's blood circulation. Naturally, this system must be changed before the birth, the birth... And that change occurs, according to the textbook, in the second week of the seventh month, and to be precise, on the tenth day. It is precisely on that day, according to Mosaic law, that the high priest takes the blood into the holies of holies and presents it as an atonement for the sins of Israel. Leviticus chapter 17 puts it this way. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. The blood... Acceptable. How fantastically it coordinates with the changing of the blood in the body of the unborn child to make it a blood acceptable because the life is in the blood. Just as the high priest enters into the holies of holies with the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the unborn baby enters into the holies of holies of this earthly tabernacle. Remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.19, What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Everything is accurate. Everything is coinciding exactly with the physical laws. Okay. Now... The next feast is the tenth day of the seventh month in the development of the human child, but the baby is not ready to be born. One more development is yet to occur, which coincides perfectly with the fifteenth day. That was the tenth day. This is the fifteenth day of the seventh month in the law of Moses on which the feast of the tabernacles is celebrated. She put it this way. 
That's when the lungs are developed. As long as they can get their little lungs going, we can bring them along. Even if they are born at that early time, I'm afraid if they decide to come before those lungs are finished, then they have a very little chance. But the 15th day of the seventh month, a normal baby has two healthy lungs. And if born at that time or point, it can take its own air and live on it. What an incredible picture of the Feast of the Tabernacles. The tabernacle is the house of the Spirit, just as the lungs are the tabernacle of the breath. God blew breath into Abraham to make him become a living soul, and Christ breathed the Holy Spirit upon his disciples. Now, on the 15th day of the seventh month, that's exactly when the lungs are developed. From that day forward, the baby could be delivered and lived. It's corresponding exactly with the Feast of the Tabernacles. One more feast day. The baby could be born at that time. But there's still 80 more days before the actual birth of that child or the baby is delivered. Well, the last 280 days on the last day, feast day, we'll say the Jewish calendar there, is the Feast of Dedication. Feast of Dedication was given on Mount Sinai. But the Feast of Dedication is symbolic of, and this is just typical of birth, the cleansing of the temple. It's symbolic of when, they, when the baby is delivered, the cleansing of the temple, which coincides exactly with the last feast day, feast of dedication, celebrating it when the temple is cleansed. Evidently then, I'm going to read this to you in closing of this, Jesus is referring to the birth process concerning the birth of the golden age. Now I want to get that across to you. All these feast days were showing to us a birth cycle. It corresponds exactly with the way a child is born in the natural but Jesus did it all in the supernatural and every feast day corresponded to something that he had to do, something that would be done through the life of Jesus, but it corresponded exactly to natural childbearing. And through his death, burial, resurrection, and through all that he had to do when he came to the earth, it would give the birth not of just us, you and me. Now here's what the Spirit of God has shown me. Not just you and me. We have come as far as Pentecost, I believe, in this cycle. We have come to Pentecost, which is the first signs of the resurrected life, or the first signs of the birth of the golden age. Jesus was referring to the birth of the golden age when all the entire humanity, the heavens, the earth, and all that in them is would be gathered again unto our Heavenly Father and be presented to Him without spot and without wrinkle, completely delivered from the effects of the curse and the effects of sin once and for all, not just how we live. So, it says, this is referring to the kingdom of heaven when Christ shall reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, just as the baby could be born any time after the 200 day, even so the birth of our new age could occur without depending upon a precise schedule. Now, I believe we have come to the place of the Feast of Pentecost. We have come to the place of the first signs of this resurrected life, the first signs of this new life of the Golden Age. Now, another feast which occurs, which actually is the, it was in there, I just didn't go over it until now, is the Feast of the Trumpets. The Feast of the Trumpets is symbolic of when the trump shall sound. Get off the baby picture. We've been born again, yes. But it wasn't, that was not the, the end of all things. That was only, we've only come to Pentecost. The next feast in line is the Feast of the Trumpets, which is found in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. When the trump of God shall sound, that's the next event. That's going to happen in this birth process of the golden age when the new heavens and the new earth and everything is brought back and brought back unto our Father God. So the Feast of Trumpets is the next event and just as it says here, it could take place any time. It is on God's list. It's the next thing. You know, people say it's after and so on and so forth. Listen, this will set you free. You're going in a rapture before the tribulation. I said you're going to go before because the next thing on God's order is the Feast of Trumpets. And that trumpet is going to sound. And those of you that are ready, you're going to go off and meet Him in the air. And then it goes back to, well, as a matter of fact, the next feast, you can write it down if you want to, is the Feast of Atonement. You say, I thought He already did that. Well, He did for us. He did it for everybody. But Israel did not receive that atonement yet, did they? All right. The Feast of the Atonement is prophetic of the day when the Messiah shall come in the battle of Armageddon to make atonement 
by his blood for the sins of the nation, the Jewish nation, Israel. Feast of Atonement. See, we have come to that and applied that, but the Jewish nation hasn't yet. And so the next thing is the trumpet. Then the next thing is the atonement when the battle of Armageddon, when the Lord comes and, prophetically speaking, makes atonement for the sins of Israel. Because, see, Israel has not accepted as a nation the blood of Jesus. And then the next would be the Feast of Tabernacles, which is prophetically speaking, prophetically now, prophetically speaking, which is a type of the millennial reign, reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then are you ready for the next one? The Feast of Lights. Lights. When the light is come. When there is no more darkness. When there is no more darkness. There'll be no need of the sun and the moon and the stars. For you'll see coming out of heaven the holy city. And he sitting upon the throne will be a light unto the people. There'll be no need for the warmth of the sun. He'll be our warmth. He'll be everything. Which you'll find these things in the book of Revelation. But let's get back and let's tie this in together. Back to Galatians. Let's get back in Galatians. The fourth chapter. Are you ready for this? This is who you are. Glory to God. This is who we are. How do you like being called we're still in the womb? See, we have legally and vitally made a part of this ours, right? But let, let, and legally, you know, vitally, it's ours in our spirit. But the golden age has not come. We're still waiting for the manifestation of the what? Sons of God. Isn't that right? Okay. And as you know, well, we'll get into Romans 8 and we'll see how we're travailing for it. But let's go back to Galatians 4. Now let's read again from verse 5. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions of sons. And because you are sons. Now remember, in the Jewish custom, that child, until the appointed time of the father, did not have the knowledge or, or, or the, the ability to, to stand in this office as a son. So he was considered a servant only until the appointed time of the Father. Then at the appointed time of the Father, there was this great to-do. Everybody gathered together. This great thing was about to take place. He was about to be adopted as an heir in the family. The robe of righteousness or the toga virilis in the Greek would be placed around him. A ring would be given to him. And he would stand as an heir to all his father's throne. Amen? Okay. Now, now Paul is referring to the same thing here. Israel could not become the sons of God. They could not become born again. They could not become heirs of God. They just couldn't do that because it was not the fullness of time. But all of this was to lead them unto Christ. And then in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son so that no longer would they be servants, no longer would they be unlearned children, but they would be taught completely and fully. And now He can impart eternal life. He can take the robe of righteousness off Himself and put it on us as children. And no longer are we children, but we're adopted into the family as sons of the Almighty God, equal heirs and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's exactly what He's talking about right here. Let's go to read the next verse. And because you are sons, God has sent forth in the Spirit... Forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Okay, now go back to Romans 8. Oh, we read some of these things and we, are, we read them so blinded, blind, but look at this, will open up your eyes a mile wide. We are not unlearned people. We are not on the outside trying to get in. We are the first people to ever receive the resurrect the end we have received a foretaste we have a reality of it in our spirits and many times we see a foretaste of all that glory here while we're walking on this earth today but blessed be god one day it's not going to be just a foretaste one day it's not just going to be in our spirits but it's going to be spirit soul and body cashing in on all that god has we will become as he is i mean literally not just in our spirits Completely holy spirit, soul, and body, and it'll be the end of all things, and we'll be in Him to the fullness. We'll see Him as He is, know Him as He is, etc. 
Okay, Romans 8, 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. Though the robe of righteousness has been placed around you and me, we are adopted legally into the family of God. We are heirs of God. Well, let's go on and read it. The Spirit itself or Himself beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And if children and heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, it so be that we suffer with Him that we may be also glorified. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth as a woman groans and travaileth in birth pains. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth until the... Complete manifestation of the sons of God in pain together until now, and not only they, but now listen, but also ourselves also, which have the first fruits. Remember, James says, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we might become the as the first fruits. We are as the first fruits of this great end of all things. We are the first fruits of this resurrected power, of this golden age. We are the we have tasted it first. Oh, glory to God, we have tasted it first, along with Jesus. That's who, what a blessed generation we are. Okay, we also, it says, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, groan within ourselves, for what purpose? Waiting for the adoption to wit. It is in the Spirit, friends, but he's talking about the redemption of our body is not made known yet. Legally, but not vitally. It will be, we could cash in and foretaste it now. But legally, on that day, when we are changed, our bodies will be as glorified. Spirit, soul, and body. We groan and travail, groan and travail. As a woman who groans and travails to bring forth a child, we are groaning and travailing from within our spirits where we have this life until not only us, all the creation... All of heaven, all of earth, all that in them is, is reconciled and brought back unto God our Father, gathered in one in Christ Jesus in the golden age when God will live upon this earth with man. That's it. Well, let's, let's go to Revelation 21 and just excite ourselves a little. Amen? <laughs> Hallelujah to Jesus. That's why I still believe that, that the church started at Pentecost. First signs of this life. He's talking about the birth of the golden age. And we are, we are in the womb. But we are the first signs of life. Okay. Praise you, Father God. 21st chapter, first verse. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. That's what he's talking about. Right there. And there was no more sea, and I, John, saw the holy city of New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adoring for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said... And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water freely, of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my what? He shall be my son. Now let's go to 22nd chapter and just read a few verses. We'll close right here. Verse 1. And he showed me a pure river. Of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river was, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. 
We are travailing and groaning until the curse be totally wiped out, lifted, and Satan and all his cohorts and demons are in hell, and the earth is delivered, and the heavens are all delivered from all this terrible curse that came upon us when Adam fell in the beginning. This is the end of all things. This is the birth of the golden age. Blessed be God. And look it. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and forever. The end of all things. Blessed be God, beloved, you and I, we are right there in Pentecost. We are the first signs of this glorious resurrected life. The trumpet is about to sound when we all go up in the glory. Then the atonement will be made for Israel. They'll all get back in and get saved. And then Satan's got his thing coming to him. He's going to be put away forever. And blessed be God, we're going to see God come down from heaven and live on the earth with us, you and me. And he'll be our light and our God forevermore. Hallelujah. Blessed be God. That's it. That's what he's talking about. And he did it all by the birth process of a woman giving birth to a child. But they couldn't see it. The Bible is progressive revelation knowledge. Progressive knowledge. I don't want to live back there under that old covenant. Oh, glory to God, I don't want to live back. Now, are you ready for this? That's why legally you and I have been redeemed from the curse of the law. But, you know, it's still here. That's why it's a fight of faith. You've got to get what you've got inside to the outside. And it takes faith. Steadfast faith. Diligent faith. Amen? Diligent, steadfast faith it takes for us to live above the curse, above the law of sin and death. But one day will come, it won't take any faith because there will be no more curse. There will be no more death. There will be no more sin. There will be no more sickness and disease. But you can live above it now, friends. I said you can live above it right now. Right here and now, when we cash in and get that on the inside to the outside of us. Amen? I want to do it, don't you? Have a good time while I'm doing it too. Amen? Praise God, we can do it. We have the adoption of sons. We are sons of God. Adopted by Him and back into the family. Amen? Amen? Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Thank you for listening to our legacy teachings. We pray today's message has a profound impact upon your life and your ministry. I want you to know that God loves you, has a great plan for your life. But if you've never made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life, I'd like to invite you to do that right now. Just pray this simple prayer right after me. Just say, Heavenly Father, I come to you just as I am. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus died for my sins and was raised from the dead for me. I open the door of my heart. I call upon the name of the Lord. Lord Jesus, come into my heart now. I receive you and accept you as my personal Savior and Lord. If you prayed that prayer with me, you're a child of God right now, and I encourage you to get into a good Bible-based church where you can learn to grow in your Christian faith and experience. God bless.